Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This month we conclude the three-month series Ray's Haunted 50s, covering films that Nicholas Ray directed in the 1950s that relate in different ways to Twin Peaks. And we're going to end with one of the most direct connections, I would say, but limited connections to Twin Peaks, where there's a particular aspect, particularly a firewalk with me, that this film resonates with uh, probably more prominently than the other films we've discussed. And this film is, of course, bigger than life. It's uh, the last chronologically of the of the Ray films we've discussed about a suburban father and uh, his issues as he takes a drug treatment for his condition and how that impacts his family. And we'll talk about all of that. Uh, there's some other people who have covered this, talked about this in the past. Uh, Lindsay Hallam, the author of a book on Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, has made some interesting comments. We've discussed the film in our various conversations, um, one of which was actually the last conversation that we had. So I'll pivot off of that, the, or the last conversation that I had on my Twin Peaks Conversations podcast uh, with, was, was with Lindsay Hallam on the 30th anniversary of Firewalk with me. So that'll be linked below. And just to quickly cover the other podcasts that have been up uh, in the past month since the previous episode, on my Lost in the Movies feed, I did a big episode called Melodrama, Crime, Fantasy, and War, full of, well, it's a big episode, but it's full of little reviews, uh, little capsules, where sometimes just for a minute or so, I talk about a certain aspect of a movie. Some of them are a little longer, five or six minutes. But the films are Ah Wilderness, A Letter to Three Wives, Invitation, Morning Glory, Parnell, Little Caesar, Dick Tracy, the old 40s version, Nightmare Alley, Gilda, Woman in White, It Came from Outer Space, Pinocchio, The Devil and Daniel Webster, the Enchanted Cottage, The White Cliffs of Dover, The Fallen Sparrow, and The Angel War Red. On my Patreon podcast for the dollar a month listeners, uh, patrons, that covered, uh, it had a theme of like the 80s, so I covered the films Desperately Seeking Susan and Top Gun, as well as a lot of film capsules, shorter film capsules on other movies uh, from that era, and uh, some other topics. And then, uh, as I mentioned, for Twin Peaks Conversations, the conversation with Lindsay Hallam, uh, part of it is on YouTube for the public, and then part of it is for the $5 a month tier on Patreon. So that's my podcast activity in the past month. Now, on to Bigger Than Life and its connections to Twin Peaks. Hello, I'm James Mason. I want to interest you in a new film that we've just finished at 20th Century Fox. Since this was my first assignment as a producer at a major studio, I made sure that the story chosen contained all the ingredients that I like to find when I'm a member of the audience. I want excitement and entertainment in its broadest sense, but I also insist that the human issues involved are of the sort that might reasonably crop up in the everyday lives of all of us. Our story is based on just such an issue. It's about a drug, a drug which properly used can be a lifesaver, but improperly used can be a life destroyer. Hardly a day goes by without new and shocking revelations in the nation's press about this drug. And now here it is, out in the open at last. A story of a handful of hope that became a fistful of hell. One pill, and he felt he could handle anything. One pill, and he felt bigger than life. Bigger Than Life is a 1956 film directed by Nicholas Ray. It stars James Mason as Ed Avery, a schoolteacher 
who is having dizzy spells, I think chest pains, stomach pains, and keeping them to himself. He's also keeping to himself that he has a second job working as a taxi dispatcher. And uh, he has sort of a stayed home life in the suburbs. His wife is worried, actually, that he's having an affair, that she doesn't tell him right away, but you can see it as he kind of hides what he's doing after school, says he's going to a meeting. She sees him having a rapport with one of the young, attractive teachers. And not that she's not, you know, relatively young and attractive. It kind of amused me. I was looking up the actors after. She's played by the wife, uh, Lou Avery, a little digression here, played by Barbara Rush and uh, James Mason, of course, as the, as the uh, hero. He was, I believe, mid-40s at this time. Maybe even close to fifty. I'm not sure when he was when when James Mason was born. And uh, she is like, I looked up her day. I was like, did the math. I'm like, she's like 27 or 28 in this. She's playing the wife of the middle aged guy with like already a 10 year old son or whatever. So, you know, Hollywood's always always doing that. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, she's sort of the plain wife in this in this presentation. And and she says at one point they have f- friends over for bridge. And she says, oh well, they're kind of dull. And he says. Just very matter-of-factly, well, we're dull, just how it is. But, you know, they're, they're other, other than his health issues, they're pretty much at, at peace, but there's a tension there. And so finally he has a spell so bad he collapses. They take him to the hospital, they do these tests, and they find that in his condition uh, he needs to take a cortisone, a new miracle drug, as they call it, and... Uh, they warn him it does have some side effects, but this is what will keep him alive. Without it, he'll probably be dead in a year. So he starts taking this, and right away, he's becoming more grandiose. He takes his wife to buy uh, nice clothes that they might not be able to afford, and he's ordering the shop girls around and trying to make it like, we, yeah, we don't belong here, but we're going to be here anyways, you know. And then uh, at the school, at the PTA meeting, he starts lecturing them on how their children are basically savages that need to be tamed and uh, and uh, that, that they're essentially morons who need to be educated and all of this stuff. And so there's right away a dark edge to this uh, these sort of this grandeur, delusions of grandeur, I guess you could say that he's feeling. And as the film goes along, it becomes worse and worse until by the end of the film, he's become, become so grandiose. First, he wants to leave his wife. Then he says, we have to stick around for the sake of our son. It's our duty to raise him in order to discuss this film and its relationship to Twin Peaks, we have to get into spoilers. So here, three minutes in, I'm I'm gonna get to the uh, the climax of the film. Ed eventually becomes convinced that they have to kill their son and then kill themselves in order to uh, sort of balance the scales because the son has become too disrespectful. He is an abomination. He's reading from uh, the Bible in which, you know, Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, and then God tells him to stop. It was just a test. And the wife says, but God stopped Abraham. And Ed says, God was wrong. And that kind of sums up where he's at at the end of this movie. So he's going to kill the boy. He is has a momentary lapse of kind of, uh, I don't know, conscience or awareness. And the boy runs out. And there's a character played by Walter Matthau in this film, Wally Gibbs. I think he's a gym teacher at the school. And he races in at the last minute, wrestles Ed on the stairs, knocks him down. And they take him back to the hospital, give him the correct dosage, get him back on track. And they're like, if, if he doesn't remember anything, he may still be in a state of psychosis. But if he can remember and feel regret, 
then he's back. You have him back. And so that's what happens. He, he remembers they embrace in the bed, but it's left on this ambiguous note of, well, there is no like great fix to this. He has to keep taking that drug or he'll die. So you've got to regulate it and keep him on track. And during the film, he was getting more pills all the time. He was sneaking over to a pharmacist, pretending he was a doctor, getting a stub from him to fill out and just kind of manipulating his way and he he'd been developing such a tremendous addiction at this point so this film came out in 1956 a little earlier in my head for some reason i always think of it as like a 1958 film i don't know what difference that makes except that somehow it's like i think of it as being at the tail end of the 50s like having accumulated all this 50s mythos and up to that point and, and almost being on the cusp of the 60s. But no, it's it's mid-50s. It's actually very soon after Rebel Without a Cause, maybe even a matter of months because Rebel Without a Cause came out, I believe, in the fall of 55. And uh, so, this, so this film was at most like just a year later. Uh, it's even got the kid from Leave It to Beaver in it before, I believe, before Leave It to Beaver went on the air. Actually, I was watching this. Um, I, I, I was watching this on a uh, trip with uh, my parents and they kind of wandered into the room around this time or something. I think maybe I was showing them Walter Matthau and my mother or father, I can't remember which, but you know, they're both baby boomers grew up. Uh, my dad certainly remembers the fifties as, as a child. And it, it, one of them said, isn't that leave it to beaver. And, I, and it's this kid. And it's funny too, because you know, you think of leave it to beaver as this chipper cheery show of the fifties um, but this kid is drawing like a really dark painting in his classroom, just all black with like a stick figure in agony. And Ed's asking him, oh, what's that? And he says, that's called like the darkness of my mother or something like that. Kind of Lynchian image, actually. And uh, it turns out, yes, that was the boy from Leave it to Beaver. So I thought that was funny as a, as a 50s touchstone. And again, coming a year after Rebel Without a Cause. And uh, in this film everything there's a an unsettling edge to everything and, and Jonathan Lethem has a great interview on this disc it's a criterion release where he talks probably about 10 years ago he talks about uh this aspect of it where everything is kind of okay but you can just see how frayed it is on the edges like they have a hot water boiler right in the middle of their pristine little kitchen just sticking out there kind of ugly uh, the houses are all kind of packed together. He's got a backyard that's spacious, but there's like a railroad going by right near it. And it's kind of hilly, like it's not like a nice, clean patch of suburban backyard. Um, so things are both not quite as manicured and nice as the people might want them to be, but also not exactly as bland, even though he says we're dull, as it turns out, you know, they're there's a lot of not dullness inside of them, for better or worse. And in this film, it's it's more for worse. So some of the connections to Twin Peaks are probably apparent right away here in that you have a fairly placid, pleasant surface and this darkness broiling underneath. Uh, the father figure, of course, is the great tie here. And that's true both to Firewalk With Me explicitly, but also to a certain extent on the show Twin Peaks. I think... I was a little surprised to notice more connections to the show here because I always think of this as a film that is like Firewalk With Me Cinema where it's very connected to the Twin Peaks prequel and the character of Leland, I think. Uh, I wouldn't say he evolves directly out of Ed Avery because this for a long time this was a hard film to see. It wasn't particularly popular. Lynch is sort of a intermittent cinephile. Like he studied film. He's 
seen, you know, some classics and has those as reference points, but he's not like a hardcore cinephile. Doesn't go to the movies a lot or follow kind of the history of film very closely, it seems. So I would be surprised if he had, if he had even seen this, let alone had it in mind with Firewalk With Me, but they are definitely kindred spirits. Uh, Tony Dayu, uh, years ago, a film critic who I've uh, sort of corresponded with about Twin Peaks, both just in comments on my site, and also uh, he kind of got me, got the ball rolling really on this current Twin Peaks obsession uh, seven years ago with a Firewalk With Me conversation that he had, and I think he may have even cited Bigger Than Life in that. But uh, he has some interesting... Uh, observations to offer in a piece that he wrote, which I'll link below, in which he compares Firewalk with me and uh, and Bigger Than Life. And one thing I didn't think about uh, that that he pointed out that I thought was really interesting was he says, the respective arenas where each drama plays out are virtually identical in their layout. Dining room prosciniums adjoining a living room at the foot of stairs in a two-story home. And it's true. The layout of the houses is actually quite similar in a lot of ways. Uh, You even have the stairs going up, and then you have, like, the parents' room on one side, uh, the parents' bedroom on one side, and the child's bedroom on the other. So there's that sort of architectural similarity. And, of course, Nicholas Ray was studied, had trained as an architect, so fascinating then that he kind of came up with this layout. And again, just by happenstance, because this was the house that they chose to shoot at in the Seattle area in Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me, or in the pilot, I should say, in Firewalk with me in the series, they made a set. But this was just the layout of the home and it worked out really well. I mean, had they not had that fan up in the ceiling, I don't think that fan was like written into the Twin Peaks script. It was probably something in the house that Lynch was really struck by, made it a focus, and then it became this motif throughout Twin Peaks. So just interesting happenstance there that also happens to align with uh, what was probably a more consciously designed set on uh, Nicholas Ray's part. And Tony goes on to say, if most of the histrionics take place in that communal room, the actual crimes are perpetrated upstairs. And here, I guess I was going to save it till the end, but since we're on that track, I'm going to put it here. This long quote from Jonathan Latham, I'm just going to read the whole thing. And I don't even know that I need to comment on it that much. It's so apparent how it relates to uh, the use of the space in, in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me in particular. Um, but maybe also both the show and the film, and that I will comment on a little bit. But here's what Jonathan Lethem said in the special feature on this DVD. Of course, the use of the staircase itself reminds you of Hitchcock. I think of all the times that Hitchcock creates a house where downstairs represents the knowable and the lucid, and upstairs there's danger and difficulty and the unknown. The upper chambers of domesticity is the more imperiled one, the more dangerous one. The downstairs are still partly in society. Walter Matthau can come downstairs. Other neighbors can come in and out and have a part. You still have the protections of a wide array of witnesses, but once you move up those stairs, you've gone into the inner chamber, and it's just the family's life, and that's where the real difficulty lies. It's a mixed state that you're in. If you're going up and down the stairs, you're neither in society nor in the privacy of your family life. You're neither in waking hours or in sleeping hours. You're in something in between. So it's a place where things are transacted and where people fight. And the destruction of that staircase at the end of Bigger Than Life is quite traumatic. The ways James Mason and Walter Matthau are wrestling, and they can just splinter it like a movie set. The possibility that American life, which looks so solid and complacent, can just be splintered and destroyed so readily by conflict. It's as though we are being asked to look more closely at the world around us, 
for its subversive, dangerous possibilities. Just as the danger doesn't come from external sources, but from inside the family, even ordinary household objects, you know, there are no guns or knives or poison in this film, it's a Bible and a pair of scissors. The ultimate example in the film is the way the motif of milk works in and through the movie. And I ended it there. He goes on to talk about the milk. Milk is talk worth talking about uh, as well. And uh, I'll do that in a moment. But first, just to comment on what I was saying about the film and the show, it occurs to me that in Firewalk With Me, you don't actually see people coming into the house at all. In fact, the one moment where somebody even comes close, where James pulls up on his motorcycle, Leland stands guard over like the threshold, standing at the top of the stairs and looking down, kind of glowering and driving him away, essentially. And and later, when James comes back to the house and she runs out to his bike and hops on, you see Leland peeking his head out from within. So nobody even enters into the lower level of of the uh, of the home in Firewalk With Me. But on the series, you do see people occasionally, particularly Donna. I think she is the main person who comes to the house a few times and uh, visits. And Maddie, of course, comes to stay, and we mostly see her downstairs, and she's actually murdered downstairs, interestingly enough. So I think you do sort of see that that dichotomy between the downstairs and the upstairs between the show and the film. And of course, the most important element in the film is that upstairs is where the abuse happens. It's where the incest occurs, and that directly relates to that kind of bedroom, the hallways between it and the stair coming down. And that sequence where Laura is dreaming or half dreaming and she comes out and she looks and the fan is still on the stairs. Like there's this whole kind of geographical architectural, I suppose, layout to the house that kind of compounds this idea. And in Firewalk with me, the, t the stairs twist as well. It's an interesting element. There's sort of a platform where it comes up from the kitchen then it turns around to go up the stairs. And oftentimes we get shots up the stairs that allow us to kind of forget this, where we're standing on that middle platform just looking up, and it seems like a straight, straight shot. But there is a twist in there, and I think, of course, that corresponds to uh, the the kind of twist that's in this family in Firewalk. I mean, again, I don't think David Lynch looked for, I don't think he even knew necessarily who the killer was at the pilot. So he, he wouldn't have even had that in mind, but he wasn't looking for a house where the stairways twist because it matches. It's just one of those sort of happy accidents that happens, or tragic accidents, I suppose, in this case, where something just corresponds really nicely to the to the core of the idea that, that exists there already. And so in Bigger Than Life, interestingly, too, the near killing, because, of course, he doesn't actually kill his son, but he almost does, actually occurs upstairs in the house, in the bedroom, whereas in Twin Peaks, somehow it gets displaced out to the woods. And that speaks to kind of this dichotomy between the idea of a supernatural origin for this mystery and this murder and a more psychological domestic origin and that kind of tension between the two. And in Bigger Than Life, there's something of a tension as well, where of course there's no figure of Bob, but there is the excuse or the explanation of these pills. That's what it triggers this this reaction with the father. And I think even more so than Firewalking Me, especially if you watch the show and now you're kind of shocked by Leland's complicity in the film, you, you tend to think of it as giving him less of an excuse. And bigger than life, it's really a pretty total kind of explanation. Like, I don't think anyone watches the film and at the end is like, oh, that Avery, Ed Avery is a scumbag. He was just using the cortisone as an excuse to kill his family. We all know that this is what set him in that direction. Nonetheless, it's triggering things that are with in him already. It's it's opening up this troubled space inside of him. None of this stuff just comes from nowhere. We get 
some little clues of that in the beginning of his kind of trying to hold together this tension. Uh, economic insecurity is a huge part of this film. Jonathan Lethem talks about that as well in his interview. All of these ideas of both the fact that this family exists kind of on the precipice of the middle class, as many middle class people did and do, where it seems like you've got everything together, but you're always on the close to the tipping point um, where you could fall back into some sort of uh, desperation. And you're also not quite welcome in the top spaces either. You're kind of in this shuffling in this in-between zone and trying to pretend that it's neutered of any class content. And uh, and, uh, and Letham also points out how there's posters of Europe all over the house. They have uh, these maps and travel posters. And James Mason, of course, is uh, he's originally British and has this kind of mid-Atlantic accent like Cary Grant and is, uh, you know, himself not quite quintessentially American. So that's interesting. That's not necessarily a comparison point with Twin Peaks, but just thought that was interesting to bring up. I think in Twin Peaks, uh, the economic aspect is is not there at all. I mean, Leland seems to be totally secure in his position as a as a lawyer to the wealthiest man in town. They are totally cushioned there. It's it's much more of purely a psychological uh, triggered kind of trauma and crisis there. So a few other notations about the film. Uh, there's a uh, motif of hands that reminds me of the arms in Twin Peaks because it's often the left arm that is uh, vulnerable. I You see Ed grasping his arm when the mirror shatters when his wife slams it because she's getting frustrated with his sort of imperious demeanor and he stares at it in distress, reminiscent of Leland staring into the mirror, of course. And uh, in this case, I, I believe he's holding his left arm almost like it is numb. And his arm is kind of shaking at certain points, like the arm shaking. I think it's actually the right arm in the show. But, you know, that idea of like a vulnerable arm. And they use posters and imagery of hands, statues and stuff throughout the film. So the actual slogan for the film was the story of the handful of hope that became a fistful of hell, taking the pills in your hand and ingesting them. And uh, there's a Red Cross poster in the school that says, Lend a Hand. There is a red hand model in the hospital. So they keep showing this motif throughout. And, uh, and, and that's obviously reminiscent, particularly Firewalk With Me, where they bring in the idea of the arm going numb uh, in relation to the ring. So there you have another round symbol in the hand that uh, is either, I guess, depending on your perspective, stabilizing or destabilizing or both. Uh, another show that I thought I, I, the connection to is quite explicit. Well, first of all, there's, you know, Mad Men, this idea of the sort of taking apart, deconstructing this suburban life and this, this man going through identity crisis. That's the obvious one. But the actually more direct connection with the plot is Breaking Bad, which opens with this conceit of a chemistry teacher who is in dire economic straits and has to work at a mechanic shop. So again, with cars after school is an after school job that he's hiding from his family because he's ashamed. And then he has like a health crisis and goes to the hospital and finds out his condition and that he's sort of an immortal threatening condition and, you know, opens up this whole other aspect of him where he becomes this kind of monstrous person. So that that's fascinating to consider. And I think that one, I think, almost has to be explicit. They have to have been looking at bigger than life when they came up with that premise. But back to Twin Peaks, there's a shot of 
Ed crying in his bathrobe, much like Leland is down on the couch in the middle of the night after kind of a manic episode coming down and crashing and weeping. So it's a great portrait of a, of a manic depressive personality, in this case triggered by the medication, but obviously exhibiting all of those symptoms and behaviors uh, to the extreme, you know, much more extreme than most people would. I said that I was going to mention the obsession with milk. I suppose that's a good point to get into us. It is throughout the film. Uh, he's uh, he's giving it to, or he's denying it to his his child until he finishes his homework and he looks at the milk at one point at the dinner table to see that the the level is lowered so he knows the wife gave the son some milk, just this kind of, of deranged behavior, controlling behavior. Um, and that is a connection in two ways. First of all, the milk in Fire Walk With Me where Leland is drugging Sarah, forcing her to take the milk. Uh, that becomes kind of an image that we see in there. I think that's the only time we really focus on milk in all of Twin Peaks. But then she sees the white horse, which, of course, you know, that that connection there, um, whether that's connection to drugs, death, whatever, there's just the visual connection to the uh, to the to the milk. And then also just the behavior at the dinner table, of course, is very reminiscent of uh, Firewalk with me, where he's screaming at Laura to wash her hands, same sort of obsessive attention to some little detail, whether it be the milk or the dirt under the fingernails and demanding that it be rectified. I mean, I just, I can't overstate how similar this character in his manic state and controlling state is to Leland Palmer. There's just an incredible uh, connection there. And at the end of the film, when they're supposedly recovering and everything's better again, it's, it reminds me of the wake episode in Twin Peaks uh, on two counts, one of which is the sense of like the peace settling in a way that doesn't quite feel convincing after what they've just been through, and also the way they talk about remembering. And that is something that on the surface of the text in episode 17 is something they're hammering in. You've got to remember, I'm going to tell you what really happened with Leland and Laura, and Sarah's coming at peace because she's accepting this is the truth, and she says to everyone at the few, at the wake, um, I've got to remember, it's very important. Then, of course, she's erased from the story. They hardly mention the Palm family again. It's clear the show itself is eager to forget, and this scene is part of that. And in Bigger Than Life, the film kind of has to end there because who knows what's going to come next, but they're stressing. You know, he says, I remember, I remember everything that happened now, much like Leland in the uh, in the cell with the water pouring down, saying, oh my God, I killed my daughter, I remember, and that's his moment of healing. Here, same thing with Ed. And the doctor or somebody says it's important to remember you have this idea that maybe going forward it can be avoided if he can be conscious of it so there's a theme to both twin peaks and bigger than life i think of not suppressing not withholding too much because then the danger of the overcompensation coming out uh, becomes potentially lethal that's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Next month, we kick off another season, another mini-series uh, with a themed connection between three films. This theme is called Disordered Stories. It's all narratives that are told out of order in some interesting way, jumping back and forth, uh, either from different perspectives or different periods, chronologically. Uh, this is going to run the gamut and it's going to connect to a, a story that, or uh, sorry, a theme that I'm going to start 
um, in the winter after this. The, the first of those films will also actually be a disordered story, but it'll also connect to another theme. I'll save that for later. But the first of these disordered stories will be Back to the Future Part 2. I'm going to compare that sequel where they go, um, you know, not just back in time, but literally back into the first movie and find some interesting connections with Twin Peaks there. So here's a taste of that before we go out. Now, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating an alternate 1985. There have been a few changes. It's like we're in hell or something. No, it's Hill Valley, although I can't imagine hell being much worse. But they'll all be back. 